0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we are going to look in a little more detail about how events such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine could affect UK investors and the UK economy, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Wealth and Investments, Chris Bamford, Senior Fund Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud.
1: Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. Obviously, our focus continues to be on Ukraine and necessarily, uh, from our perspective, on the reverberations for investors. But of course, all our thoughts and worries are with the, with the victims of this horrible humanitarian crisis. So for this episode, we're going to look in a little more detail about what this means for the UK economy and what investors might be able to do to help insulate themselves from some of the potential economic effects. So we have Will back to give us some of the wider perspective. Hi, Will. Hello, Nikki. And super pleased to welcome Chris Bamford, who is our guru in all things fixed income and inflation. So a super helpful guest to have as we're thinking about the impacts on on economic and markets. So, Chris, hi, thank you so much for agreeing to join. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. So, Will, let's start off. I mean, a week is a long time in market land uh, at the moment. We've seen a bit of a bounce in the last... Couple of days around risk appetite, but but clearly a lot of volatility. What can you share with us? What's going on?
2: Well, it's changing minute by minute, Nikki. You're right. Yeah. It's been a really wild ride. And, uh, 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 you know, so Wednesday saw a huge surge in risk appetite. Um, well, not really very much. So you saw, you know, bond yields. I, you know, the cost of lending to uh, or the, the the interest rate uh, available from lending to. You know, high quality governments, they rose sharply. Uh, Oil prices fell. um, Stock prices rose, surged ahead, particularly in Europe. I think Europe was up nearly over 7% on the day. And that was really kind of consistent with a slightly more benign reappraisal of the range of potential outcomes from the conflict. I'm not sure, uh, you know, they're back down again a bit today. And there's some sort of, you know, some other sort of headlines with regards to sort of, you know, oil supply and so on. Uh, I'm not sure how much information it's worth, you know, gleaning from all of this. Our view has Change not changed from, from earlier in the week. And that's really that, you know, this is a humanitarian tragedy that will likely result in from an economic perspective, and a perspective a likely absorbable but of course very unwelcome kind of stagflationary hit for the global economy. So that's you know, more inflation and a bit less growth. Now, Europe is hit a lot harder than the US for obvious reasons. Europe is very reliant on uh, European uh, on Russian gas, for a start. Longer term, that the, the point we made earlier in the week on the podcast was that you know it, the on balance, it likely adds a little bit to those kind of inflationary fears that were already around in the run up to this crisis.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the economic consequences of the conflict has been, you know, a significant increase in commodity prices, you say, you know, oil and natural gas prices have increased significantly since the start. And and I suppose following the recent news of the embargo on Russian oil, that market has become increasingly volatile and markets are reacting to the news flow, speculation and rumors. So on one hand, you've got speculation of alternative supply sources. And on the other hand, there's a possibility of additional restrictions, which may put continued pressure on our oil and energy prices. Looking at it from the UK's perspective, you know, Ofgem increased the energy price cap in February. That's going to take effect in, in April. So that's gone up 54%. And, you know, given the current landscape, it would not be surprising to see another increase later in the year in October. The agricultural sector is another area gaining a lot of focus. Ukraine has been focused, uh, has often been referred to as Europe's breadbasket. Uh, and wheat is, is one area, you know, widely reported as a key example, given Ukraine and Russia account for nearly a third of global supply. So for the UK, alongside higher energy prices, households are also going to have to contend with rising food prices, which is likely to continue to have an impact on UK inflation throughout the rest of the year.
1: Um, will, do you see a likely supply response from the oil and gas industry? I mean, is it is it possible to plug this gap that, that Russia will leave?
2: Well, I mean, I think one of the things to be clear on here, uh, Nikki, is that whatever solutions there are, they're not quick, I don't think. I mean, capital spending, point made by, you know, Many oil analysts, and this has been the case for some time, is that you know capital spending by the 12, 1200 largest energy companies in the world has fallen by 70, 75 percent from peak levels uh, in the last uh, a few years back. But demand for fossil fuels has remained uh, the same. Um, You may find that some of that investment is kind of incentivized to return now that prices are a bit more accommodative, so to speak. You could certainly see that you know shale and some of the other complex, expensive geologies to access are likely. A bit more attractive to invest in now that oil and gas prices provide a bit more cover for those looking to invest in these areas. But that's not something that's going to happen, you know, overnight. It's, it's a it's a long term shift. There are some shorter term things can do, but it, but this is a really tricky moment to be honest, and not one that's easily resolvable overnight at
1: all. And Chris, clearly, we we our minds then move to green energy. So surely. Governments, uh, economies are looking to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels if supply is going to be so constrained.
3: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I suppose as part of the recovery from the global pandemic, we were already seeing an emphasis on infrastructure spending with a focus on that transformation to green energy sources. Now, the EU is now talking about energy independence, particularly from Russia by 2030. And there's speculation about additional borrowing to fund more green infrastructure spending. That's obviously, you know, there's a degree of uncertainty around around whether that will come to fruition, the speed of the execution, etc. I mean, in the UK, green energy from wind accounts for about a quarter of our total electricity generation. There has been a focus to increase capacity there through offshore wind farms. More recently, speculation about uh, potentially seeing some more expansion in onshore wind farm capacity. That's about 11% of the total energy production. But, you know, with green infrastructure transition, we have to also think about the inflation angle. So green infrastructure spending will lead to an increase in demand for certain commodities that are inputs into the production of these technologies. So solar panels, for example, I mean, there are 35 mineral commodities that go into producing solar panels. Cobalt and lithium are critically important for battery technology. Wind turbines, aluminium is going to be a key component, not to mention, you know, all the demand for semiconductors. So... Clearly, this is an important area, but it's really important to emphasise that these are long-term solutions to mitigate climate change. With infrastructure, nothing is short-term. It's it's longer-term in nature. And the green energy solutions that we have in place at the moment are not going to be sufficient to take over all of the factory transport and household demand for natural gas.
1: That's really clear. Thanks, Chris. And Will, I know in many of our discussions over the last couple of years, you often caution about being humble around forecasting, especially when it comes to inflation. Presumably, you remain in the camp that, uh, that this isn't a particularly easy area to understand the dynamics and the impact on the global economic outlook.
2: Yeah, no, I don't, no one's changed their view there. I have to say, Nikki. I mean, if you think about the last few decades, you can think about this has been an era of abundant supply of many things. You know, from workers. Um, You know, you can think about the the accession of the Chinese economy into the global, the Chinese labor market into the global labor labor supply in many parts of EM as well, Eastern Europe in particular. You've also seen huge increases in female labor force participation. Uh, a lot of that has had a good role in keeping, or a role in keeping wages down in aggregate um, and keeping those kind of inflationary pressures contained. Commodity prices are perhaps also an area, you know, you saw the shale boom and, uh, you know, technology are providing access to new parts of the the commodity complex at cheaper prices. But if you look at, and Chris hinted at this just now, the years ahead might look quite different. You've got the ageing of the global workforce. There's a very different labour supply situation, which we're seeing reflected in wages already around the world uh, in many places in the UK included and the energy transition which Chris just talked about it's it's not going to be cheap by the looks of things and we've underinvested in a lot of those fossil fuels that we still need to get us to that cleaner world However, and here's my sort of sitting on the fence point. I mean, beware, we are still operating in a very unusual economy with the sort of pandemic, the policymaker response, what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, just some of the factors that are really distorting the view here. So we need to keep in mind that alongside all of that, you know, that, that core view that there may well be a bit more inflation. There's still a plausible path ahead where we're back to worrying about disinflation and deflation and ever lower real interest rates and all that comes with it in six months time. So I think that the the point from us, and it sounds wishy-washy and, you know, splinters, whatever, but, you know, the point from us is really from an investment perspective, you really got to try and uh, imagine that the world doesn't just have one future from this point, that there are multiple futures and you need to keep an investment foot in lots of camps to be able to make sure that you're not left behind when that new paradigm does arrive
1: and chris just taking advantage of your expertise here are you going to get off the fence or or are you in the will cap <laughs> uh,
3: i mean i would say it's a pretty large fence and i, I do think there's room for more than one on it um, i uh, you know i've i've been i've been fortunate enough to spend much of my career speaking with experts in economics and macroeconomics and inflation and 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 what i can tell you inflation is notoriously difficult to forecast particularly with multiple different outcomes of the future. Now, even before these recent crises, I would see a range of outcomes, range of forecasts. Some would be right, some would be wrong, but it was very, very difficult to, to, to pin down what, what was actually going to happen. In the current situation, I would say it's forecasting any, anything in the future is nearly impossible. And I suppose that said, I I might say something though about the next 12 months, which probably makes me a little bit contradictory. But (laughs) at least in the next 12 months, we expect to see energy and food prices likely continue to be a problem for the rate of inflation. But ultimately that will fade, which is one of the reasons why central banks tend to look through one-time price impacts for commodities. The biggest concern for the Bank of England will be what happens to inflation expectations? Do they become entrenched? Is there a possibility that they lead to a wage cost spiral? But in terms of forecasting inflation, the outlook is very, very uncertain.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think also, I mean, uh, you know, if you think about the UK, I mean, this is certainly one area where actually the concerns about inflation should be a bit greater anyway. Um, because if you look at that, um, uh, you know, you look at um, what we're seeing in terms of um inflation expectations in the UK economy. This is one of the economies where, and, and the Bank of England, they produced a very helpful table in their uh, monetary policy report. And the most recent one had a table of inflation expectations uh, measured by the market, the consumers and so on. Um, and all of them are sort of indicating quite sort of universally that this is an area, this is an economy where the central bank is it. In danger of losing credibility as an inflation fighting force, not to the degree of Turkey or anywhere close to it, but you know, this is you can certainly have sympathy why the Bank of England are thinking about acting here more than they are in other places.
1: So, Chris, do you think obviously we got readied, if you will, for the Bank of England to to start to to or to continue to raise rates? And then, of course, the the Ukraine situation happened. What is the market thinking is going to happen next? So
3: you know, the Bank of England is in a difficult position. The current bout of inflation is is largely driven by external supply factors that are really outside the bank's control. But however, as Will pointed out, you know, the bank is increasingly worried about the risk of inflation and, and you know, these expectations of future inflation becoming embedded. The bank has hiked twice so far, and it is likely that the bank will continue on this path. Uh, we, we expect to see another hike come through in March and, and really further hikes come throughout the rest of the year. Now, we did see at the last meeting, you know, some members vote for a 50 basis point increase in the rate. I mean, I would say on that since 97, when the bank gained its independence, it's never increased rates by more than 25 basis points at a time. And so I think we think the most likely outcome is that the bank will continue with a slow and steady increase in the base rate over the coming meetings. And, you know, overall, the market is sort of still expecting interest rates in the UK to top out at around 2%.
1: Okay. And and Will, is there a risk of policy error here? There's there's a lot of talk in in the financial press around potential recession and, and stagflation.
2: Uh, yes, in a word, but I think the risks to the downside have increased with Ukraine and the energy price story, uh, for the UK economy. And it, and it was already a complicated picture to say the least before all of this, to be honest. Cost of living crisis and, you know, a lot of the sort of pandemic associated stress was already kind of centering on the already more vulnerable, vulnerable households. And this is where, unfortunately, the sort of, you know, the, the energy shock, the bulk of the energy shock will be felt the hardest too, because, you know, the, lower income households tend to be the ones that spend proportionally more of their income on energy costs. You know, the important, you know, some will point out that there is this sort of stock of excess savings that have been accrued during the pandemic. But unfortunately, that doesn't really come to the aid of the lower income households, because this is unevenly distributed across, you know, the income profiles with the top 40% of households by income sort of really commanding the, the overwhelming majority of those excess savings. Now, there is scope for fiscal policy to to ease the strain a bit. We shall see on that. That's an open question. But for investors, I think it, it's worth pointing out that for those able to, and for those some savings to spare, that inflation-linked bonds can be an important part, uh, can, can be an important tool, uh, investment tool in kind of stagflationary stagflationary periods.
3: Yeah, I I, w- I would definitely agree with that. And um the UK inflation market over the next five years is pricing retail price inflation to average at nearly five percent. Uh, longer term, in the UK inflation implied in in the inflationary market is 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 approximately one and a half percent above the Bank of England's target. I mean, and that is pretty much forever, which is pretty extreme in terms of the the, the pricing. And I suppose when I say forever, I sort of mean. Going out to 2073, which is where the longest bond in the in the market is, so that, that's going to outlive me. It's probably going to outlast most of us uh, on the on the call, but not wishing to be uh, yeah. <laughs> forecasting on that front. But, <laughs>
1: no, we'll accept that, Chris. Uh, we'll accept that.
3: But 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 these levels are, are, are elevated, and and they're elevated when we compare them to the likes of the U.S. and Europe. Those markets imply long-term inflation much more aligned to the central bank targets. Now, the UK is a very technical market. It can be distorted by the demand from pension funds who use the asset to match their long-term liabilities. And over the long term, we think inflation in the UK is actually pretty highly correlated to some of these other markets like the US. Uh, At times, it diverges. But on average, over the longer term, inflation in the two markets is pretty well aligned. So as investors, we think you're better placed taking a global approach to allocating to inflation-linked bonds to try and position yourselves for that sort of stagflationary scenario.
1: And Chris, can you maybe help some of our listeners that perhaps don't have experience in this area? How, how can that be incorporated in an investor's portfolio? How do you incorporate inflation-linked bonds?
3: So we, we do think inflation-linked bonds do form an important part of the diversified portfolio. As we said, they can perform well in an environment of low growth and high inflation. But there are certainly some inflationary environments where these assets are going to perform poorly, even when inflation is high. As we said, embedded in the price of these securities is an expectation on the future price of inflation. And in the UK, that's currently well above target. So, you know, we think, again, taking a global approach here makes a lot of sense, looking not just at the UK, but but markets like the US and and Europe. Clearly, as we said on the call, the risk to inflation remaining elevated is high, but the longer-term outlook is pretty uncertain. And so what we would recommend to investors is to take a much more diversified approach, hold a range of assets that can help position the investor to position for different inflationary and economic uh, environments. I'll just say
2: hear, here. It's so nice to hear well, of course of course I of course <laughs> from I someone
1: else. Yeah, I mean we we always <laughs> bang
2: on about it. But do you know you you're totally right. And I, and I think also the last month in particular, you know, there's There'll be a lot of our clients at the moment who are sort of looking at, uh, and potential clients who are looking at markets and thinking, wow, God, that's a sort of, you know, that there's a really nasty returns on a very short period. I wasn't expecting this, or this is not what I've sort of hoped for, or all that kind of thing. And just, I think the point to remember is that these markets at the moment are real reminders about the benefits of diversification. Some bits of the capital markets complex that have long been out of favour are suddenly doing quite well. Some bits that were really in favour uh, they're not doing so well, as we've warned repeatedly. Uh, and the message also, I think, has got to be that the further out you can retain your focus on capital markets to sort of keep an eye on that, you know, you you, you can't expect much. On a one-year, two-year view, uh, you really need to sort of elongate your time frame of investment as much as possible. That's where you have the advantage in a sense of just sticking with it. Or at least that's the message uh, from sort of long history is that it's really about time in the market not timing the market, and just try and stay focused on those long-term goals. That's historically been the trick to investing, is not trying to sort of do it as a one-year activity, but as a multi-year activity in diversified format, as Chris so eloquently put it.
1: Yeah, make a plan and, and try to stick with it no matter no matter what, unless your circumstances massively change. So um, Will, Chris, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to our listeners and subscribers. Of course, the World on the Street team will come back at, at regular frequencies, especially as we see uh, so much happening in the world of geopolitics and, and markets. So with that, uh, wish you a, a safe and pleasant rest of your week.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.